Welcome to the next part of the Center for Character and Social Responsibilities podcast, Caring, Character, and Community. A major part of our mission is to facilitate conversations among educators, community organizations, organizers, and engaged citizens around the challenges of creating conditions in our schools and a community that allow our children to flourish. The focus of season one of this podcast is on the role of how a focus on caring, one's own and others' character development, and a commitment to community has guided the decisions of leaders in this time of crisis. In part one of the season, we had conversations with leaders in the PK-12 space. In part two, we will share time with leaders in the higher education space. Today, we are speaking with Nicholas Covino, who is president of the William James College, which for 40 years has prepared its graduates to provide psychological services throughout the Boston region and beyond. Under Nick's leadership, the college has significantly increased the cultural and linguistic diversity of its student body and its reputation for preparing all its students to be effective practitioners in our increasingly diverse community. Nick, we want to thank you for sharing your time with us and to talk about the role of caring, character, and community as a leader during crisis. So you've been a leader at Williams James during this time, and we're very interested in learning how caring, character, and commitment to growing and nurturing community has influenced your leadership decisions. So could you tell us a little bit about your institution and how this last year has been for you? So it's been, it's been awful. <laughs> so first of all, thank you for inviting me to, to come, and it's an honor to speak with you. Um, it's, it's been very trying, like it has for everybody's organization. It's really hard to not know where you're going uh, week to week, month to month, and when you have to plan, uh, it's like sailing a boat without charts or navigation or lights at night sometimes. Uh, we've had ourselves in a space where people didn't know how to keep themselves safe from an illness that we didn't understand. We woke up in the mornings thinking this was all going to be over in weeks or months. We've been making plans for tomorrow, and we've been taking care of today, and we've been looking at yesterday. So many of us have been running an institution that really looks like three institutions instead of one. It's been very taxing. I'm sure that this is the case for everybody, perhaps everybody that works in an institution, but but certainly people who are leaders. I'm exhausted most of the time. When I go on vacation, I'm never refreshed from a weekend ever. It's just very, very, very taxing. And yet, uh, you have to be there for this because if you're not, uh, the institution that you care about, the people that care for, are cared for by your institution can't survive. So, uh, so you need to be there and you need to be working and people need to have you be there and, and working. So uh, I don't mind saying it's the hardest I've ever worked and I've worked a long time. Yeah. Well, Nick, you actually said th- two very different things. I want to follow up on both of them. One is you said that there are three institutions that you're managing now. What are those three? So we run a bricks and mortar institution and we uh, have a service. We have uh, a building to take care of. We've got folks that come into the building. Uh, we run an online institution. Uh, we have had to last year, moved folks from the bricks and mortar to online, which fortunately we could do easier than I thought we could do without much preparation, by the way. And with, I think we did it in a weekend. I think we moved from being here present in March to all of a sudden moving ourselves online. 
And then we have next year's institution. So it's hard to know what next year's institution is. Is it a bricks and mortar institution? Is it a blended institution? Is it uh, an online institution? But I had to go through, all my folks in leadership had to go through figuring out what we were doing today and looking at what was next year going to be like. Because we're a college, we needed to do admissions. We needed to prepare ourselves for September to be in a different space. Many of the maps and charts and guidelines and policies and procedures and experiences that we have really relate to one school uh, or one college. And, and being able or needing to take care of all of that was really challenging. And then we had to think about what our relationship is to the community because we are a place not only that trains the workforce in the community, but we are a place where our students work in the workforce. So we needed to equip them quickly to work remotely to do telemental health when most of them had not done that. We needed also to think, we felt the need to think with people about how to create information and and programs for folks that were working in COVID. So we, for example, had a good, very good partnership with Lavare School of Nursing to talk with nurses about what they were facing on the front line and some of the stress and strain that came with being a frontline provider during a COVID time as a nursing professional. We had to find a way to help teachers in school districts try to understand how they were leading in a time when there wasn't always clear direction from the government about what they should be doing mm -hmm. and where so many of them felt like failures because they weren't able to teach at the level that they are accustomed to teaching at and they knew that and we had to help them deal with the disappointment in themselves that they had. So there were a lot of different faces that we needed to somehow stand up quickly uh, because we're that place. Yeah. I mean, clearly an incredibly complex set of challenges and no real guidelines and no real uh, models for how it's going well. I'm sure you spent a lot of time talking with other education leaders about these issues. But I want to ask something you suggested about modeling self-care. So you as a leader in this chaos, when people are, you're caring for so many, your staff, your your, your, your faculty, your students, how do you model self, how do you show for them that taking time for oneself, or if you were able to, uh, how did you manage your needs for self-care? So professor, I think I get an F for modeling self-care. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think, I don't think I did really well with that. And my guess is that any number of people would tell you that I, I felt obliged to be here. Uh, so when you think this is a, uh, uh, a discussion of leadership. I sent everybody home, but I came into work. Uh, I was here every day. Often my car was the only one on the lot. I felt like it was important for somebody to be in the hub of what was happening, to be able to talk to the various places where things needed to be done. I felt like it was critically important, and, and our folks did a great job. They humored me a bit, but they also, they, the staff came every other week on Zoom, and we met with the entire staff, and we talked about everything from how were they doing with COVID to what was going on in the college to how we were managing. As you may remember, uh, there might have been a half a dozen things uh, that were just really earth-shattering. It, it turns out it had nothing to do with COVID, but had to do with the death of Mr. Floyd, had to do with anti-Asian hate, had to do with uh, people getting uh, shot uh, in spaces, and they just reverberated through a community much more intensively, I think, because we weren't physically connected. So we had to make the physical connections and the opportunities to talk. 
So no, I don't think I did terribly well with that. It, it, it never felt to me like I could take time off, be away. We're very small. I've got very good help. I've got very good folks in spaces of leadership also. And I'm sure that uh, I could have done better to let them have more, but I felt this is my job and I have yeah. to be there. Yeah. So Nick, you know, uh, you know, how does caring and being caring play into your decision making? How, how, do, how do you think about that as an ethic that governs the way, the way you approach choices you have to make each day? So I, I listened to Dr. Sibelius, uh, just trying to do a little homework because I knew you'd ask me to do some homework before I came here. And I listened to her interview with you and she talked about being uh, in a space that she felt responsible to the community, in a space that some higher power put her in, right? Um, I, I, you know, there are people who are wicked smart, as we say in, in, uh, in Everett, uh, there are people who are at the top of their game. I don't feel like I'm that leader. I don't feel like I'm that smart, that capable, that able, uh, that talented, but I'm here in a leadership position. Uh, and my thought clearly is I, I have some significant responsibility uh, to care for the needs of the folks that I'm responsible to, responsible for. So that's that's front of mind. I, the the, the uh, the, the values that you're highlighting in your series uh, are seem to me to be highly appropriate for people in leadership spots. Uh, so unless you're wicked competent and you know how to do stuff really, really well and you have to be that person in that job because no one else could do it, uh, you're, you're in the job you're in because other people need you to be in that job and other people depend on you to do that job. Uh, and so caring the caring community, the responsibilities that are there, the things that need to be done by an institution. I feel like that's the leader's job to try to interpret that, to try to implement that, to try to respond to that. And I try to do that uh, a lot. You know, Nick, it sounds to me that in, in some ways you're describing uh, the role of a leader, uh, one way a leader cares is kind of be that bulwark in the middle of the storm, that kind of steady place, that that place where people know you're there, that you're available, and just by providing that anchor, you you that's a caring way of letting people feel a little more secure in the middle of this chaos. Is that a fair something? I, I I don't know bulwark, but I'm at least I'm a work. <laughs> I'm at least a work. Um, People look for a signifier. People look for somebody yeah. to, to be uh, present. And I think that was part of my dispersing the group, but being here, I could say to people, we still have a college. There's still a mission. There's still an identity. We're still present. I'm still in my office. We've got this together. And you can mm -hmm. be where you are because everybody could work remotely and teach remotely and study remotely. But there's a there there. And, yeah. and, and it felt to me like that was symbolically important, but it also turns out to have been emotionally important for me to be here. Yeah. So, Nick, so in that work, and, and, and clearly as we're moving past the immediate crisis, who knows what's on the horizon, where has that approach to caring been challenged? Where have you seen it not work as well as you, you hoped it would or thought it could? I, I did some thinking about this, so thank you for this. This this was better than uh, uh, 
religious life and, and points for meditation that they used to give you in religious life when I was a Jesuit, it gave me a chance to think and reflect a little bit about, about it. I think the biggest challenge is me. You know, I was thinking what you, what you asked, what's, what is my quality of char- character? And I, I, I asked my wife, uh, who gave me a, a number of pretty good uh, descriptors. I, I asked uh, Lily, who's worked with me for 15 years in, in the uh, administrative space, and she, she did uh, similarly. Um, I, I look at the leadership that I bring to the space like a servant leader does. And in, in that way, the servant leader is called upon to look to the community for what it needs and, and to try to f- use the, the authority, the power, the money, the whatever you got to facilitate that, that work. And so most of the time that works pretty well because people like that kind of leader, right? Nobody likes working for the arrogant person that's the smartest person in the room. So that works pretty well. People are happy to do that. I, I think the biggest impediment is me. So when I was looking at those qualities of the servant leader, uh, I thought, well, you know, I could check off caring for the, I think I can do that. And I think I'm certainly responsible. But I think, you know, it, it, where I fall is really on the, uh, uh, fall down to myself is around creating, a, doing a better job of creating consensus and, and buy-in and, and getting people. Sometimes I feel too quickly, there's a, there's a fire out there. We got to get the damn trucks out and hook the hoses yep. up and yep. get it done. It hasn't been done for a long time. It's particularly uh, easy to feel that way about mental health because we haven't had the trucks out there putting the fires out for a long time, and a lot of people have uh, been hurt by that. It's particularly the case with diversity in mental health, where mental health is ninety percent white still, and we don't have folks of color in in the field. It's particularly mm-hmm. the case for military who are still in a space 20, 20 something every, every day, killing themselves, veterans and, uh, and active. Uh, so we haven't done that. I, I could do a way lot better holding myself back more, I think, and, 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 and letting others come to it. So it's your, your question in the beginning, you know, did I need to be as, as present as I was? Could I have not taken better care of myself? I think I should, and I think I should be more in, more engaging and uh, and and uh, bring people to consensus more than I tend to do. That's my biggest, I think, downfall. You know, so so is this one of the challenges uh, that we face in as leaders, where sometimes you know the everyday problem on our desk is, as you say, the budget the bricks and mortars, uh, getting people the resources they need, and that those are the things that ultimately at the end of the day, if that doesn't happen, we'll be held responsible, uh, and it's core to our job. Then there's this other thing that we think about, this this softer thing called community, that we're challenged as we're caring for the system. Do we lose sight sometimes of what it takes to build a caring and community around consensus. Is that, is that what I'm hearing one of your struggles is? I, I think so. I, I think it's fair. You know, I came into a place that was going uh, bankrupt and uh, and really needed, you know, our story and needed to be turned around. And we we came from like, you know, we, a small place to a much more substantive place and not substantial place. And now we're in a space where we really are emerging as a leader around uh, especially multicultural education and training for mental health. Um, 
you, you can feel a sense of passion about that, urgency yeah. about that. You and I have had those conversations when we've had lunch. Um, but I think there is a place for the leader to step aside and let the community have its strength and say, we've got this and we're going to do this. And, it, and so I think it really is a challenge for a leader to be to know when to stand forward and to be a bulwark or to say, follow me, I'm going to block and we're going to go at this thing. And when you say, what would you guys like to do? Here's a problem for us to address. Yeah. Let's hold it. What resources do you need? And let's bring out the uh, the community's lead. And um, and I and I think I'd be a much better leader if I did more of that. That really is important to do. And and you have a stronger organization when you do that, and and it's less dependent on one person or two people to do that. What what would it take for you to do that? Well, I've had two analyses, doctor, and so I've I've spent a lot of time on couches <laughs> I, that I credit for having helped me get married and stay yeah. in this job, and uh, and I've got a little boy, and we're we're doing well. Um, I think that it. I, I appreciated your asking me to think about this. I I think you have to revisit this if you're in a position like this. Um, take the time to reflect about. What is more optimal, and where do you where do you go? It's not a common thing for a turnaround leader to be a servant leader, you know. And and I've been a turnaround leader, and now for the last probably ten years, I've said to myself, please try to school yourself for the long run here. Uh, build the folks up, support the folks around you, let them make decisions, let move, let's move things forward. So it's discipline, it's reflection, it's feedback, it, it's trusting people like you or colleagues to give me a, a heads up and say, you know what, that was a pretty, <laughs> you didn't do terribly well with that meeting. <laughs> here's a good, here's a better way you could have done it. So um, that I think that's the that's the task. Yeah. So and 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 and, and um, you know, the other question we want to engage you with, and I think you're ta- speaking to this now already, is about this conversation of character. And as a leader in the higher ed space um, that's not in a religiously affiliated school or a pri- you know, this is a private school with a long um, history of a particular way of approaching it. So when you think about character, particularly in the context of uh, Williams James and, and your commitment to you know multicultural competence and equity in society, what does that mean to you? And how do you see character playing a role in your decision making as a leader? So thank you. I thought about that also in, in maybe in two ways. So the first is, uh, though my my wife and my uh, colleague gave me a bunch of different things about me that are uh, qualities of character, I would say among the, uh, the the thing that holds them all together is I'm I'm wicked responsible. Uh, if you ask me to do something, I'm I, I get it. I do it. it. If I need to go. Whatever it takes, I'm gonna. I I see responsibility as something that I need to rise to and to take care of, uh, and my principal job. Looking ahead, that that changes, right? So what am I responsible for? So pretty soon, uh, so at the moment, maybe even yesterday, I should have done more of this. I thought uh, I I need to bring more and better and stronger and more people around me in this space. So I've got recently 
uh, several, especially at the level of academic uh, leaders around me who can do way better than I can do with things that uh, need to be done. And my job is to continue to support and develop them, send them for training, talk with them, listen to them, give them ideas, respect their roles. And, and they're, just, they're, they're just growing into uh, really strong uh, uh, folks in that space. So I think my, my uh, challenge is to try to think, well, what are you responsible to for? Yes. So for me, yep. when I first came on, I thought, I'm the wrong color in this space to be thinking about multicultural education. So when, when I first met you, it was reading your stuff before you came to BU and, and talking and thinking with you early on about uh, this whole issue in counseling and mental health of multiculturalism. You'd been such a leader in that space. And I thought, but I am the leader here, and this is the college that should do this, and I've got to get this done and meet the people uh, like yourself and others that are doing it, that can school me, teach me, help me, direct me, direct this institution. And now we have more folks leading in that space with strength. And I got to get out of the way and let them do it or stand beside, you know, uh, be be with them, walk with them when when we do it. So uh, that feels important to me at the moment. You know, Nick, as you talk about character, I, I, I've heard two different ways that you talk about being expressed. One is in the responsibility for others and taking that responsibility and finding in yourself ways in which um, you can meet the needs of your institution and the people around you. So that's that kind of, um, you know, pardon me if I call it as kind of a, a classic cisgendered um, white male theory, right? That this is our world that we have to care for. And, and, that, and, that, and that's a wonderful part of having privilege and power that when, when you take it and make it part of your service to others, it's, it's, a, it, it, it's incredibly useful. Then the other part of, of character you're talking about is how can I be open to the needs of my community and use my set aside maybe my privilege and power to distribute that power and leadership and that takes character as well. I'm, am, I, am I hearing that right? I think I think so. So, except that in the first, though, you know, obvious, I'm uh, a, a white male in a space of accomplishment and looking back, I've had it for a long time. My, my mom grew up in Charlestown, and uh, at a time before it was Tony to live in Charlestown. She was one of eight kids and poor. Uh, my dad grew up in Everett uh, before it got the casino, and it was poor. Um, these guys never went to college. My, my mom went to work so that I could go to BC High when I was looking to go to high school. My mom, when she was young, saw people leaving Charlestown and, and doing better in life because they had a BC High jacket and they went to the local, that, that preparatory school. And she said, when I have, not when, not if, when I have a son, I'm going to send him to BC High so he can, he can do that, uh, have that opportunity. My mother wasn't Catholic uh, and she wasn't married, uh, but she had that vision and they went to work for me. So for me, I don't feel that kind of privilege in, as I look back. I was trying to think, where does this come from? It comes from those yeah. folks. My mom yeah. was highly reliable. My mom took a job at night to pay my tuition so I could go to school. My dad was a cop, and he said, you know what, son? My dad was great with his hands, great with his hands. He said, I said, Dad, show me how to do it. He said, go upstairs and read a book. Go do your homework so that you can go to school. and you can Because that was how they saw 
the emergence of that gen- there were my dad was a first generation italian my mom came from uh a long line of folks but mostly folks that that uh were uh were poor so for me i never really i discovered power later in my life yeah. uh, that you're describing and the models to me of that service are those two people they were reliable dependable unbelievably responsible they gave of themselves to their kids they set themselves up to do what we needed to have done uh and and they're in my head they're my interjects they're my mental representations when i start thinking about what should i be doing and then i met a whole bunch of other really good f- folks after that that kind of fit that model uh but no i don't feel like uh the entitlement is there, I, I, but I do feel the responsibility. I do, in, in some way, coming from them. That's not to ignore the advantages, because the advantages are clear. It was an easier path for me out of Everett and Charlestown than it is for a lot of other kids because of my color and my size and uh, and my education. But you, 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 Nick, you've done a great job of articulating one of the um, conversations the center is interested in having is you know, what's, what part of being caring and demonstrating character is culture-bound, class-bound, and what part of it is this kind of understanding of what works well between people regardless of their caste and background? Not to ignore one or the other, but that somehow there's this interaction between how we got what we are, how people treat us because of who we are, and how we want to be treated and treat others in this human space. And I hear you saying that issues of responsibility for you is somewhat class and privilege-free. It's who's going to step up and, 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 and commit themselves to being that. And that is independent of what one can afford to lose. Right. So that's well said. Doctor, thank you. <laughs> That's a good interpretation. Thank you for that. So, following up on that, one of our challenges is that in higher ed, there's lots of constituents, you know, students, professors, staff. So, as you try to be caring and build a community, how do you manage and balance your commitments to these each groups, which sometimes feel that they are not necessarily uh, served well by the same outcomes? So, I, th- I thought about that too. Um, this was one of, the, one of the questions you shared. I wish that I had more time and greater ability to be with students to talk about what they're experiencing and to share their journey, and I, and I don't have that kind of time. I did when I taught here years ago. Um, it's hard to be the president and jump in on someone's class. Uh, that, that, that No one likes that. Uh, it's hard even to walk around the, the campus and sit and have a conversation. That's that's awkward too. But I don't I don't do enough of it. I know I don't do enough of it. I have faculty, however, who do a lot of it and they're wonderful at it. And the students appreciate and value their being there. So what I think my job is is to support the faculty and the staff because they take care of the students and they do it really really well, a million percent better than I. So over COVID, as I say, I met every every week for a while, every other, with groups of staff, and we just talked for an hour. I met in smaller groups. And then at several points during the COVID experience, I met with faculty, groups of 10 or 12 faculty, and I just said, how are you guys doing? How's your kids? What's going on? What's the struggle? What's the strain? What can I do to help? Or can we just talk 
with each other and I thanked them for what they were doing and appreciated how difficult that was to be in a space where they were teaching and they had a child on their lap or the dog came in or their husband got sick and they had, you know. So I, I think my job as a leader is to support the leaders and that, uh, uh, as I say, not to forget it because this was a learning lesson more for me or again for me. I need to draw out their power more than I think I do in the space and, and trust that more. But I do see my uh, responsibility to them as important because they're taking care of all the others. They're taking care of the students uh, and being present to them. So I try to kind of stratify what I'm uh, what I'm doing. You know, Nick, Nick you you said this a couple of times, but so in terms of thinking about one of the ways you face this crisis uh, to and, and by integrating a combination of char- character, caring, and committed to community is to put aside time to hear from your staff and your faculty about what they're working through and lift them up. Say this is identify physically in this scary time to be together, that their, their presence is important to you and that that is one of the ways you've chose to lead through this crisis. And I'm probably getting uh, C plus B minus maybe with it, but it, I see that as really as critical as being, uh, you know, the, 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 the blocking back and saying, you know what, give me it, we'll, we'll, we'll move through with this. Uh, it's much more important to build that kind of a team when you can. Yeah. Um, uh, although Lily said to me that my uh, uh, colleague, she said, uh, you do stuff that most people wouldn't do. <laughs> and, and you just, you know, you make yourself do it, you get out there and do it, you take the heat, you do the stuff. Mm-hmm. So you have to be some of that. But I think yeah. uh, the learning lesson for me uh, from this exercise is to do a little bit more thinking about how to do the other. And I'm hopeful I can become that too. So in that, uh, how's the ethic of caring not work? Can you give an example where it hasn't worked out for you, where putting caring community at the front end of your thinking didn't work as well as you expected? So everybody that you'll meet that led during COVID can tell you that anything that they decided uh, had 57 critics. So when you try to do something that seems right, so for example, I had thought, let's do commencement at the end of September because everything in April, May looked like it was going wonderfully. And I thought, let's, we'd have to do it online if we did it in June. So if we wait till September, at the end of September, we, we could do that. And I put that out for people and half the people didn't like it, but it felt to me yeah. like it was better than doing it. And then come July, when we had the Delta variant, after about a week into it, I said, we can't bring, you know, a whole bunch of people into a hotel and have commencement when people are coming from every place. I have to protect people's health. And boy, I can tell you the screedy notes that I yeah. got from folks. And so you're trying to care about this, you're trying to care about that. And uh, and then, uh, you know, in that moment, can you pivot and think again about the needs that are there and think beyond the uh, unhappy, you, you've ruined my life because you took away this important moment and say, what are people looking for? And can I offer them that? And that felt, uh, challenging uh, to do and we eventually did a program this weekend online but I brought them together on Saturday for a hooding ceremony uh, you know we had about 50-60 folks uh, in a hooding ceremony and I said keep your folks at home 
I'm gonna wear a mask. We're gonna stay. We're gonna try to do that. So putting putting, you know, where do you put your caring? How do you put your caring? There's a there's always folks that have strong feelings about something different than what you're ultimately saying. Yeah. Even if I get better, and I'm hopeful too, at reading the tea leaves and pulling people together and building consensus, there's always going to be the folks that aren't going to be on board with what you're doing. And so that's always, that's challenging to hear the heat when it's not exactly right. And then it's challenging to think, is there a way I can give that minority opinion or the diverse opinion that's different from where the group is going? Can I give them something in this? That's really that's advanced leadership, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. that's my third analysis, if I can if I can get it. But that's a place to strive for because that a leader has to be that too. You know, Nick. You know that that's very helpful. I think for all of us in leadership positions and aspirants, when you know when throughout this pandemic is you know both locally, you know where fifty percent of the Boston families want to go back to school, fifty percent did not, and then the variations by communities within those fifty percent uh, nationally, we see this and the different responses. You know, it, it sounds like you speak to this moment where a leader who's caring and committed has to just take a leap and do their best in the moment. And does that assume that the successful servant leader, as you called it before, is going to be one who, when it doesn't work out well, will admit it and find a better solution versus double down on their failure? Well, the tendency, as you perhaps know, even you perhaps know, is to double down when it's there and you say, you know what, I have to make this and move it forward. And in a time when people's, you know, health is is really at risk, when decisions that you make are really, uh, they're not like, what am I going to do with this extra money that comes in because we had this good year? for? It's like, how am I going to keep people healthy? What's going to be the right next step to take for the institution to be here next year, right? The big, big steps, you know, do we bring people back? Do we bring people back? Part, you know, how do we do those things? I think that the challenge for 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 me, uh, is going to be, uh, I'm at my best when I can, I can hold a ground that needs to be held and then think about how can I accommodate the other folks? And, and I think the tendency, especially if people get pushy, angry, indicting, mean spirited, screedy, and they do these days because everybody's got COVID temperament. Uh, you know, we don't just get annoyed, we get irritated and we get outraged and we get angry and rageful. But the challenge is to say, all right, is there a way that I can take care of this other voice in this space and not caricature it or dismiss it or ignore it just because it's it's hostile or it's critical or it's mean-spirited or it's whatever? And then you try to do the right thing with it, my mother would say, and my, probably my father too, but try to move it forward. It's interesting. I just read, I just reading the book by Ezra Klein on polarization and then... Um um, Garza's book on power, the woman who initiated the Black Lives Movement um, uh, uh, grouping, and they both speak to the next step is to reach out beyond your group, reach out to the people with whom you disagree, particularly in your local communities, to find ways to talk, not necessarily to agree, but find ways to be together and, re- and, and reconsider each action in light of the differences. And that takes so much character and so much courage. Well, it also takes, it, it takes humility to say, you're their leader too, right? So it's what yep. I yep. think Biden at least looks like he's doing or, yeah. try, or trying to do. 
And sadly, we're all working in a world that is so tribal, so angry, so divisive, so mean-spirited that it makes that step really difficult to take because it's like, you know, when the when the slings and arrows are coming in, you're dropping your hands and you're saying, I'm here, you know, I'd like to understand this better. And people are calling you names and they're, you know, so you're not protected in a way that most of us would like to be in that moment. But it does require you to say, if you're gonna lead, you can't lead a subgroup, you gotta lead the whole group and you've gotta be yep. everybody's guy, whatever that looks like, you know, male or female in that space. You gotta be everybody's person in that space. And um, so, it, 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 but it's challenging to be that. It really helps if you're, if you marry well. <laughs> and, and uh, or part, part, relationships are key and our foundations are really, really important, important to be in a space where, where your partner can say to you, you know what, maybe you'd like to think a little bit more about this and do it, do it this way. Well, I, I yeah, yeah, I know. So, but before we let you go, um, as you think about where you are now, you know, what, what would you want to say to your younger self? You know, at what point in a personal career when you look back and say, you know, I wish I wish I'd known this or good on you for continuing this way. So I would I would wish that I could have uh, I could have uh, really taken time to be more of a consensus builder and a listener and invest in the, in, in developing strong folks around. I really feel like that's a flaw and 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 this session with you has exposed that again to me in my in my thinking and I'm grateful to you for this uh doctor thank you again um uh, i really wish i had been that i think that the um the the other thing i i wish i had uh learned more been more i've been more confident about my abilities than i believe i had i feel like I have used this journey to discover what that that I that I'm not one way, but I'm another, and I've got more ability than I thought that I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wish that my young person would have felt a little bit more uh, confident about his assets and attributes. But you know, that's the beginning of a journey, and the journey yeah. usually is uh, one where uh, you are a pilgrim and you learn on the way what it is that you're about and what you've got. Uh, it would have been nice to have known some of that years ago instead of uh, at the moment. It's almost like you're saying, trust yourself and others more. Yes. Oh, that's very trust well said. Trust yourself and others more. That's very well really said. Yeah. Well, Nick, thank you so much for your time. As always, I enjoy our time. And, and as we've got to, find, we've got to find that new restaurant now that everything's shut down in Cowboy Square, i got to come out to you. So um, I, will, I look forward to that. I miss that too. So thank you for this. And thank you for what you're doing. I think this is a remarkably important topic to explore around leadership in a very complex way. And for me, as I say, you didn't bill my blue cross for the therapy. I'm, I'm <laughs> happy for that. Uh, but you could do that if you needed to. It's been very useful for me. So thank you, my friend, and, and good luck to what you're doing. Thank you for listening to Caring, Character, and Community, the podcast of the Center for Character and Social Responsibility at Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. The development of this podcast has made possible the generous support from the BU's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development 
and a grant from the Kern Family Foundation. Thanks also to Lizzie Barquet for her editorial and production work on this podcast. The music you're, listening, you're hearing is Bluesy Vibes by Doug Maxwell, produced by Media Right Productions. I'm Hardin Coleman, and thank you so much for listening.